Thanks for tuning in to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Each month we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee, anything from a 20th to a 100th anniversary. This, as ever, is your devoted host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse Film Discussion Group. And if you just discovered our program, welcome. If you're a regular listener, we're excited to have you back. Okay, seven decades ago, a film premiered that further demonstrated the acting excellence of Montgomery Clift, announced the arrival of Elizabeth Taylor as a great A actress, marked a major turning point in the career of Shelley Winters, and established director George Stevens as a maker of masterpieces. It was A Place in the Sun, originally released on August 14th, 1951, a movie that combines the best elements of multiple genres, including romance, tragedy, courtroom drama, and even a bit of film noir. To help us honor the 70th anniversary of A Place in the Sun, I'm joined this month by not one, but two fantastic guests. The first being the son of the legendary director of this month's featured movie, it's George Stevens Jr., who has worn many hats in his career, including founder of the American Film Institute, as well as author, playwright, producer, and director. Now, immediately following my talk with George, I conduct an in-depth analysis of the picture with a man who's been called probably the greatest living film critic and historian, David Thompson, author of numerous books on cinema and a frequent contributor to the Criterion Collection. Together, we'll explore why A Place in the Sun is worth celebrating all these years later, its cultural impact and legacy, how it has stood the test of time, and what we can learn from this 1951 film, 70 Years On. Ahead of my conversations with these gentlemen, let's take a moment to contextualize our film du jour with a little help from Wikipedia. A Place in the Sun is a 1951 American drama film based on the 1925 novel An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser and the 1926 play, also titled An American Tragedy. It tells the story of a working-class young man who's entangled with two women, one who works in his wealthy uncle's factory and the other a beautiful socialite. Another adaptation of the novel had been filmed once before as An American Tragedy in 1931. All these works were inspired by the real-life murder of Grace Brown by Chester Gillette in 1906, which resulted in Gillette's conviction and execution by electric chair in 1908. A Place in the Sun was directed by George Stevens from a screenplay by Harry Brown and Michael Wilson and stars Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor, and Shelley Winters. Its supporting actors included Anne Revere and Raymond Burr. The film was a critical and commercial success, winning six Academy Awards for director, screenplay, cinematography, costume design, film editing, and musical score. It also won the first ever Golden Globe Award for Best Motion Picture Drama. In 1991, A Place in the Sun was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It was listed at number 92 in the American Film Institute's 1998 list of the top 100 American films and placed number 53 in the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions list in 2002. 
On Rotten Tomatoes, A Place in the Sun today earns an 81% fresh rating and an average critical score of 7.5 out of 10. Curious to hear what the original trailer sounded like? All right, listen up. This is the unforgettable story of a boy from nowhere fighting desperately for his place in the sun, torn between the conflicting passions that shaped his destiny. Montgomery Clift, dazzled by the radiant beauty of Elizabeth Taylor, a girl so far above him she seemed like a goddess, but only too human when he held her in his arms. We'll think of something somehow, whatever way we can. We'll have such wonderful times together, just the two of us. Montgomery Clift, bound by the warm and vital appeal of Shelley Winters, the girl who clung to him with an overwhelming hunger for love. I've been wanting to do that for such a long time. So did I. Will we see each other again like this? It's up to you. You gotta be careful. One love grew in the shadows of the night, sealed by a secret they could share with no one. The other love flamed in the bright light of gaiety and laughter. A need that drove him with all the recklessness of youth itself. A dream that was built on deception. You lied to me, George, for the last time. Now I want you to come and get me. Yes, uh, I'll come down in the morning. And if you're not here in half an hour, I'll come where you are. I'll tell them everything, George, I mean it. You too will know the fears, the desperation that claimed him as fate weaves the strange fabric of his life. For A Place in the Sun is a story that will forever hold a place among your greatest dramatic memories. Is your name George Eastman? Yes. You're under arrest. fulfilling my responsibility as the host of this podcast if I didn't pause for a moment and give you a heads up that we'll be traversing through spoiler land over the next two conversations. So just as you wouldn't exactly attempt to stare at that glaring orb in the sky without, say, a pair of sunglasses, it's best if you stop this podcast now and go watch A Place in the Sun if you haven't yet had the pleasure. Everybody caught up? Then in the immortal words of a different George, Here comes the sun it's all right. All right, time now to introduce my first distinguished guest, George Stevens Jr. Well, it's my great pleasure to bring to the Cineverse microphone a legend in the world of film and entertainment, George Stevens Jr. In addition to being the son of the late filmmaker George Stevens Sr., George is an author, a playwright, producer, and director in his own right, as well as the founder of the American Film Institute, creator of the AFI Life Achievement Award, producer of the Kennedy Center Honors, and co-chairman of the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities. Mr. Stevens has also won 14 Emmys, eight Writers Guild Awards, two Peabody Awards, the Humanitas Prize, and even an Honorary Academy Award. 
George, it's an honor to speak with you, sir, and welcome to Cineversary. I'm very happy to be here with you. I want to tell you how much I personally enjoyed your book, Conversations with the Great Movie Makers of Hollywood's Golden Age, which features fascinating and candid interviews with the likes of, oh, Alfred Hitchcock, Frank Capra, Fritz Lang, Billy Wilder, David Lean, your father, and so many other prestigious filmmakers. It was a a true page-turner from cover to cover, so thank you for that. You're very welcome. What was it like, George, growing up as the son of a famous film director? And do you have any personal favorite memories of your father you'd like to share with us? I grew up in North Hollywood, California, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it was a quiet little village just n- north of Hollywood. And my father kept me away from the movie world to a large extent. Okay. Um, I had f- great friends and and it was only, an, but I was aware of, that he did something exceptional. And I, I really became more interested. I must have been, I was 10 years old, uh, he had a 16 millimeter projector and he would get 16 millimeter prints of all of the movies he made. And I remember watching Wheeler and Woolsey comedies. They were a vaudeville team and and dad made uh, a couple of pictures with them, which were very funny. And I would thread up the projector and look at those. But then along came Gunga Din, Mm. which is still today is one of the most appealing outdoor adventure films ever made. One of the the great movies in perhaps the greatest year ever in Hollywood history, 1939. Exactly. And I would watch that. But I also, looking back on it, was affected by the humanity of it. You know, it starred Cary Grant and Victor McLaughlin and Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and Sam Jaffe played the regimental beastie Gunga Din, who was a water carrier, but wanted to be a soldier. Now, looking back, I realized that it had a theme that is so prevalent in my father's films, that of the outsider. Right. In the person of Gunga Din, who so badly wanted to be a member of the regiment. And also the quiet humor, the fellowship, that there was just a quality in this work that uh, stayed with me and and I'm sure formed my tastes in cinema and other means of communication. Well, what a great classroom in which to learn the ropes, so to speak. You you had the 16 millimeter projector, your father's films. I mean, uh, what greater textbook could there be in the world of cinema than that? Must be fascinating to be the son of a, a famous director like that. But uh, to your point, your father and, and your mother, uh, I'm sure they, they placed priority on, on letting you grow up uh, in a normal childhood where maybe you didn't feel above anybody else or something like that. You were allowed to kind of form your own identity, right? Very much. And uh, I wasn't part of that Beverly Hills crowd that you read about in uh, in books about the movie industry. Right. Well, let's dig into a little bit more about your father's directorial style, if we could. How would you describe it? What special vision, talents, or qualities did George Stevens bring to his films? All of the best ones. His parents were actors in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. They had their own theater company. His father was the leading man and the and the manager. His father played 500 different roles on the stage. Wow. Um, and his mother was a fine actress. His grandmother was named Georgia Woodthorpe. Um, his mother and dad were Landers Stevens and Georgie Cooper. Georgie Cooper being the daughter of Georgia Woodthorpe. 
got to get all these Georges and Georgie sorted out. <laughs> There's a few. He was around the theater a lot as a boy, he and his brother. And we never talked about it much, but I found an interview someone did with him. And he, when he was talking about being in, uh, at the theater with his parents, and it gave me such an insight. I assume he was, you know, 10 or 12 years old. And he said he, he would do his homework under the stage at night um, while they were performing. But his favorite moment was when his father was playing Sidney Carton in A Tale of Two Cities. And he said he'd fold up his book when it came close to the end. And he'd sit under the stage and he'd hear his father as Sidney Carton climb the steps to the guillotine and stand on the guillotine and say, it is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done before. It is a far, far better place I go to than I have ever been. Mm. And he'd hear the sound of the guillotine come down and crack. Then he'd hear the silence of the audience and then all hands coming together at the same moment and this kind of thunderous applause. And then the curtain coming down and hearing the board hit the floor. And you realize that here was a child hearing wonderful drama in the darkness and feeling the audience. And if you were asked me to rank and put one quality above all the others, I think my father's attitude of respect for the audience is the most important. You know, in this in the movie world of those days in the 30s and 40s, the studio heads often are known to say, well, the, you know, the audience has the mentality of 14-year-olds, you know, hmm. and they were always encouraging people to play down to the audience. Mm -hmm. My father never did that. He respected the audience. Yeah. And he always left something in his films for the audience to bring to it, mm -hmm. you know, the spaces and silences. And he was thinking in their mind when he made his films, you know, that along with he started out as a cameraman and brought not only this sense of the theater and the dramatic world, and, and he was a great reader and great literature to his work, but he had the eye of a, the great cinematographers and the imagery in his films is superb. Take those for two qualities. <laughs> yeah, I mean, among so many. I mean, just pointing at A Place in the Sun, which of course we're focusing on for this particular episode in more depth. Yes. I was really struck by so many great instincts your father seemed to have, and I'm sure he, he worked with great collaborators, like, of course, his cinematographer, in this case, William Miller. But, you know, he wasn't afraid to push boundaries, break from cinematic conventions, is, is my observation. Just looking at this film, and not necessarily his whole body of work, but, for instance, sometimes puts a, a key character's back to the camera for long stretches in A Place in the Sun. They weren't afraid of extremely dark composition, shadowy nighttime scenes in this movie. It's pretty dark in a lot of these compositions. Right. He seemed to value long, uninterrupted takes that allow a scene to unfold organically and kind of let the actors do the heavy lifting. He uses a lot of motifs to suggest ideas can create foreshadowing. He's not afraid to tap unproven talent in this case. A very young Elizabeth Taylor, a glamour girl at the time, and Shelley Winters, who really hadn't established herself as a, a serious actress let's say. But uh, just so many different great instincts that I was observant about this time around that struck me. It's easy to look at A Place in the Sun as such an effortless movie where everything just falls together. But of course, a lot of hard work has to go on behind the scenes. And of course, a lot of that credit goes to your father. So kudos to him in terms of his instincts. Would you agree? Indeed. And you point out, for example, in the scene where Shelley Winters must tell Monty Cliff that she's pregnant, 
you hardly ever see Shelley's face. That's right. The audience is, is thinking about and wondering, you know, you leave a little something to the audience. And, mm-hmm. and I think that also speaks to your observation about having people in shadow. Mm. You don't serve it up too much on big, brightly lit platter. Uh, you let the audience peer into the darkness and wonder. Yes. And it helps the actors. And of course, it's it's great thematically because you have a man living a double life in which one life is mostly shrouded in shadows and, and darkness and doubt, and the other life uh, is very brightly lit to some extent, the life with Angela. So the contrast just in terms of the lighting direction and design is fascinating in this movie. Indeed, you encapsulate that very well. How and why is A Place in the Sun important to you in any way, George? Where does this movie rank for you among your father's works? Well, it has to be at the top. You could choose three or four others that are perhaps equally exceptional, and but it's uh, so powerful. I graduated from high school and had no summer job. And my father gave me a job and I had two chores, one of which was to read the scripts and books that came in from Paramount Mm -hmm. at at our apartment in in North Hollywood and give him comments on them. And the other was to break down Theodore Dreischer's An American Tragedy, which meant to make a loose leaf notebook listing every scene and character and incident in part one and in part two. Mm-hmm. So in an odd way, I was there at the beginning of A Place in the Sun and later would spend time with him in the editing room. And But how he and A Place in the Sun influenced me, I went with him to the Academy Awards, it must have been 1952 or 51, and I believe the other the films nominated uh, for Best Director were Kazan's for Streetcar Named Desire, uh-huh. John Houston for African Queen, William Wyler for The Desperate Hours, Vincent Minnelli for An American in Paris, and uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, I remember, read the names, and of course he called out George Stevens, A Place in the Sun. Riding home, he was driving the car. My mother and grandmother were in the back seat, and the Oscar was on the seat between us. I must have been 17 or 18. You know, it was an exciting occasion. And perhaps he thought I was, I found it too exciting. For, but for some reason, he looked over at me and smiled and he said, We'll have a better idea what kind of a picture this is in about 25 years. What great perspective your dad had. It sounds like he was not a glory seeker by any stretch, but he had perspective. He knew that uh, movies, works of art, sometimes don't necessarily resonate immediately upon release. They sometimes have to kind of gestate for a while. And uh, I think he was proven right. I believe that, of course, this was a popular movie and it won six Academy Awards. Commercial box office was was good, of course. But decades later, I think it's kind of earned its place among the, the very greats. Yeah. And to put it in perspective, this was a time when there were no art houses. Films came and went. There was not cinematechs. There were not DVDs. There were not video. There was not Turner Classic Movies. People weren't seeing films mm-hmm. that way. And, and he was just so far ahead of it, just in his sense of history. In fact, from what I read, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't he fight so that this movie could not be shown with commercial interruptions on television? It, it's an untold story, and someone actually could do some very interesting work because it, in his papers at the George Stevens Collection at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, there's all, all the papers and 
clippings and legal documents. He sued Paramount because Place in the Sun was going to be shown on television with commercials inserted into it. Right. And if there's ever a film that has this one scene unfolding after the next that demands continuity, that is one. Totally. And it was a wonderful case. Paramount was inserting playlets and other entertainments into his film. And he even found commercials that had a woman on a beach that was very similar. Ugh. No judge was going to end commercial television, mm. but he did win it's a, a partial victory in the case. And it was a very important case for someone to stand up and say that. And and that's why he was sort of respected above others in the film community. Yeah, it speaks to your father's commitment and integrity to maintain quality and virtue in his work. I don't know if you read uh, Mark Harris's new book about Mike Nichols' biography. It's very good. No, I'll have to check it out. It talks about George Stevens, a Place in the Sun was an experience that Nichols found revelatory about movies, as revelatory as Streetcar Named Desire was about theater. Uh, He said it was Stevens' deeply considered visual and structural sense, his way of framing shots, of staging action, of positioning and directing his cast, and of letting scenes unfold slowly that kept Nichols coming back. Mm. And Mike, when uh, he was asked, by novice directors, how do you learn to direct a movie? He'd say, watch A Place in the Sun 25 times. And when you're done, let's talk. <laughs> he said that by his own count, he viewed the picture 150 times. It got to me nothing else had, he said. Wow. I appreciate you sharing a chapter from your book in which you recall being 17 and working with your father on this film to some extent and meeting Elizabeth Taylor and going out for hamburgers and milkshakes with her. (laughs) You must have been a little dumbfounded. You remarked that at the time you thought she was the most beautiful woman you had ever seen. And here she is, not quite even 18 yet, and uh, you being roughly the same age. My goodness, what must that experience have been like? And that was at this studio where the first time I went, when they were shooting A Place in the Sun, and when they broke for lunch, she came over and said, would you like to have lunch? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we walked to the commissary, and she became a friend for life. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, of course, you worked directly with your father, from what I understand, on Shane, Giant, and the Diary of Anne Frank, correct? True. Which, of course, have to be considered in the pantheon of your father's filmography as among his best work. Yeah, any recollections? What it was like collaborating with your father on actual movie making? After A Place in the Sun, the other job I had that summer, after graduating from high school, reading that stuff that came from Paramount. Mm-hmm. It was a lot for a 17-year-old, pretty dreary stuff. <laughs> you know? uh, and, you know, the popular novels of the day. Mm-hmm. A book came and I read it in an afternoon and went to see my father that night. He was in bed reading. And I walked in with this little book in my hand. And I said, Dad, I said, I read this and it's really a good story. And I think you ought to read it. He said, why don't you tell me the story? Even better. As you can see, this summer job, I guess from his standpoint, was an experiment to see if if I had any interest or aptitude for the world that he was in. And so I found myself pacing around his bed, telling him the story of Shane. So that one summer ended up giving me two great life experiences. The second being my first job on a movie set was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, on 
the location of Shane. And uh, it was so rich in experience. I'll bet. My father worked up high standards and his pictures were always, you know, substantial and well-received. Mm-hmm. But you weren't thinking this is going to be an historic movie, that people would be looking at Shane 70 years from now. They certainly are, yeah. George. And we can thank you partially for it all happening, because if you hadn't brought it to your father's attention, maybe it wouldn't have been made. That's possible. But just the idea that you are out there and all these people, and it was the first time anybody, Jack Palance, had made one movie mm-hmm. uh, with Kazan. And Brandon DeWilda had never been in, on the screen. He'd been in a play on Broadway. And of course, Alan Ladd and Gene Arthur and Van Heflin were established stars. Gene Arthur made two great comedies with my father. And you're out there on the plains under these magnificent Teton mountains with a bunch of people. Great cast and crew, I'm sure. And crew, yeah. Mm -hmm. And just being there and seeing how this film was shot and the care that was taken and the difficulties that had to be overcome. It was tremendous influence on my life. And when I brought up the matter of A Place in the Sun and my father saying, what kind of a picture is it going to be in 25 years? Mm -hmm. He was talking about the test of time. And my later life, I would start the American Film Institute, which is basically all about the test of time, preserving the American films, which were all so many of which were being destroyed and the negatives lost and training of filmmakers for the future. And later when I started the Kennedy Center Honors, that too was about the test of time, honoring people for a lifetime experience. Absolutely. This is a nice segue, George, because I plan to ask you about the AFI, if you could maybe briefly trace the evolution of it for us. Uh, What factors led to you founding the organization, George, and how has it grown and progressed since its initiation in 1967? I was working for Ed Murrow and President Kennedy in Washington, and I had gotten involved in the, when the president was assassinated, I was asked to work with them on the planning of the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library in uh, Massachusetts. Under Kennedy, he had initiated or given momentum to this idea of a national cultural center in Washington, mm-hmm. which after his death was was named the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. And I was asked to be by Jackie Kennedy to be on the committee that was planning that. So I had had with Kennedy this great belief in a federal government at its best and that the good things that could happen. And when the National Endowment for the Arts, which also grew out of Kennedy, was established, They knew what to do about opera and film and dance and theater. But someone said, you you can't give a grant to Warner Brothers. And I was asked to work with them on how the National Endowment would deal with film. And I proposed an American Film Institute. And as things would transpire, uh, I was then asked to run it. And I took it on in 1967. And we immediately set out to establish an archival program to preserve American films. Mm-hmm. to a catalog program, to catalog and identify and plot and all the details of every American feature film made in the 20th century, which now is available online. And we ended up with ind- grants to independent filmmakers and the AFI Conservatory, which we started in Beverly Hills and is now in Hollywood. So it was, a. I, I thought I'd kind of come in and do it in three years and move on, but it, it took 12 years of my time 
to get it on its feet because we ran into obstacles with the funding that was promised from the National Endowment for the Arts. Okay. President Nixon came in and they changed things around and it became much more difficult to sustain. But happily, we have celebrated its 50th anniversary and it's thriving. Uh, such a worthwhile effort. And the AFI is just so important for not only film preservation, but also bringing to light, bringing awareness to mm. people around the world, let alone Americans, uh, the importance of the legacy of American cinema, Hollywood cinema and so forth. But I, I just love the top 100 American movies list the AFI did in 1998 and also in 2007. Curious if they're going to revisit that list anytime soon. Are they going to come back with another top 100 list? Uh, do you know? I believe that it's under discussion right now. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of those things have been slowed down by COVID. I expect there will be another hundred. <laughs> They're great conversation points, I'll tell you, because people right. like to debate, you know, have a conversation about, oh, that film placed number 14. I think it's number three. Or sure. why isn't that on the list? Or how did that make the list? It's always great conversation among cinephiles and fans as to how things got ranked and so forth. Or, hey, I want to watch every movie on the list. Some people will have challenges among their friends to watch as many as they can. <laughs> Are there any lessons that your father imparted to you that maybe helped you succeed or guided you in your career path that you'd like to talk about? It's interesting. I write about that in my book. I am tremendously influenced by my father, but he was not a person who had fatherly bromides or would say, what you really ought to think about is this, or you ought to get, you know, values, integrity, ethics. Everything from him was by example. And um, it was priceless and precious because his examples were, for the most part, constructive and and helped me. Mm -hmm. And also working with him, sitting in the editing room, you'd see him editing the scene. He decided after the war, I think, I don't know that he did it before the war, but when he did A Place in the Sun at Paramount, he built a screening room. Films were then edited on movieolas, you know, stand-up machine. You've seen pictures of them with about a five-inch square screen at the top. He didn't feel that that picture was commensurate with what the audience was seeing in a big darkened theater. So he built this screening room with, with what he called the fourth wall. And the fourth wall was a screen. We were at appropriate distance from the scene, about four, four rows of seats, I guess. And in the front row where he sat on the right side of his chair was an instrument. And on the left side of the chair was an instrument. They controlled the two projectors in the projection booth behind the audience. So in editing A Place in the Sun, he would have the cut reel, the assembly at that stage of the scene on the lake uh, where Montgomery Clift and Shelley Winters go out onto Loon Lake. And we'd be running it. And remember, the film had, that scene has very long dissolves. You know, in fact, sometimes he had both machines running at once and he would see the effect of these dissolves staying on the screen. Yeah. For this generation, for those of us living today, we're familiar with video. We all know how to make a dissolve on, on our video screen. Sure. But in those days, you'd have to send two reels of film to the laboratory and have them print overlapping pieces of film as a new piece of film. So, you know, it was not just, oh, I I held my finger on the button too long, and now both of these films are showing. But at the same time, the other reel, he had different takes and different angles. So he could run the cut reel and then look and choose 
from, say, close-ups of Shelley Winters in the boat or over-the-shoulder shots of Monty toward Shelley. That was another thing, by the way, that I found fascinating in reading more about your father and his work on this movie. Uh, I don't know if he did it on a lot of his movies. From what I understand, he shot a lot of coverage where maybe a lot of other filmmakers were under the gun time-wise or budget-wise or what have you. Your father really took the time to shoot a lot of film so that he had that much flexibility in the editing room, right? Yes, and importantly, not necessarily 40 takes of a scene, mm-hmm. but different angles. Right. So he could move the shot to over the back of the actor. Yes. If the actor's not effective at a certain moment. And in r- running these close-ups, instead of looking at it on the five-inch screen of the movieola, he would see things in Elizabeth Taylor's face or Monty Cliff's face in a certain take and you know choose so carefully that exact moment Mm. to create an emphasis in a scene. So it was a very unique to him, I believe at the time, way of editing a film. And I sat there with him and had the benefit of that experience. Was that something that you used later, either as a producer, director, or another facet where you chose, for example, two screens in which to kind of simultaneously or or back-to-back view a scene, for example? Right. And always looking for the larger image, even Mm. on television specials, that you feel more when you see it on a big screen in the audience. So yes, it was something I practiced too. Uncounted lessons I'm sure you picked up from your father and yourself, (laughs) of course. Sounds like your dad also let you become your own person and come to a lot of truths yourself organically, which is the mark of a good parent as well. What's the legacy of George Stevens Sr.? What impact did he have on cinema, and how would you like him to be remembered? I think he is remembered for his films, for their humanity, for their understanding of the person who's not on the inside. And an important part of his life was the three years he was at war, of heading to combat coverage for the war in Europe from D-Day on to the liberation of Paris, the Battle of the Bulge, the link up with the Russians, and eventually Dachau. By the way, listeners, if you've not seen the fantastic documentary Five Came Back, in which they document your father's experiences serving during the war and the footage that he shot, as well as uh, some of his fellow directors, it's totally worth your time. It's a great documentary. It doesn't tell the complete story, but it really gives you a good, concise picture of what your father went through. You could add to that list a feature-length two-hour film called George Stevens, A Filmmaker's Journey, the film I made about my father, which includes an elaborate segment in the middle of the color film. War in Europe was covered in black and white, but my father had 16 millimeter color footage with him and they shot unique color footage of the war in Europe. Your father being instrumental in bringing to light for the first time the atrocities of the concentration camps. Yes. So that, that too is an important part. No question. What a legacy, though. Fascinating figure in film history, your father. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about what you're currently working on, George. You mentioned the book. Yes, I've often thought of of writing a book about what I've seen. You know, you could say it's a book about my life, too. Mm -hmm. 
actually the COVID period gave me time to refine it and finish it. And I'm very pleased with it. It's called My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. It traces my experience. I was one of the first bi-coastal people, uh, having moved to Washington, but still involved in Hollywood and mm. living a life of going back and forth and to New York. A lot of frequent flyer miles, right, George? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, it's, and it's it's an opportunity to explore some actually some pretty fascinating times, you know, both in the arts and in politics and government, and to tell those stories. And it's coming out in uh, April of next year. Can't wait to get my hands on a copy of that book and check that out, because just from the couple of chapters you gave me a sneak preview of, it really is a great read. So many fascinating recollections and anecdotes, interesting details, just uh, working in the movie business. I'm sure your book will cover more than just the movies. It's a fascinating life you have led, George. It's great to hear that you remain active and involved not only in uh, your father's legacy, but also telling your own story, which I can't wait to read more about. Thank you again for taking the time to talk with us today on Cineversary about A Place in the Sun, about your father, and about yourself and your work. Eric, it was my pleasure, and thank you for being such a stimulating interviewer. What a wonderful opportunity that was to talk at length with a man I've long appreciated and admired. You know, the next best thing to speaking directly with the director, which of course isn't possible any longer, is, yeah, to chat with his own son, right? So my unlimited gratitude to you, George, for joining us on Cineversary. Next up, it's my discussion with celebrated film critic, historian, and author David Thompson. I'm excited to introduce David Thompson, revered film critic, cinema historian, and author of more than 20 books, including the new biographical dictionary of film, How to Watch a Movie, my personal favorite of his books, and his latest work, A Light in the Dark, A History of Movie Directors. David, a big welcome to Cineversary, and thanks for agreeing to appear on our podcast. Thank you so much. Very good to be here. Such a treat to talk to you. I've long admired your work, been a follower of your writing and and your books. As I said, I really enjoy that How to Watch a Movie book. Okay, good. Yeah, it's it's great to see that you're still active in publishing and uh, have this new book coming out, which we could talk about toward the end of the discussion if you'd like. Sure, okay. So let's concentrate on the matter at hand, and that is the 70th anniversary celebration of A Place in the Sun. Now, arguably, this could be George Stevens' greatest work. What do you think? Is this movie important to you in any way? And when and where did you first see A Place in the Sun? Oh, it's a, it's a very important movie to me. I would have seen it in either late 1951 or early 52. Hmm. I'm not quite sure when it opened okay. in England, but it would have been in that first opening period. And I would have seen it in my local or one of my local theaters in South London. And it's important to me and still is because there had never been a film up to that time that moved me as much as this did. I can remember sitting in the dark at the end of the film crying and, and, and sort of hoping the lights wouldn't come on too soon <laughs> so that I wouldn't be seen to be crying at the film. Oh, Although, I've been there before, even as a grown-ass adult, where you absolutely. have uh, you have a, a teary-eyed face and uh, you don't want everybody that's, to see that you've been weeping, right? <laughs> that's right. So anyway... It's important to me because it got into a level of emotional depth 
that I had not known in a film before. And I guess I had been seeing children's films before. Mm-hmm. And, and um, this was a big breakthrough. And I found the mood of the film, the romance and the drama and the tragedy of it, I find it very compelling. And, and you know, I, I've watched it again just recently. Mm-hmm. And although the film has changed over time and I've changed over time, it's still got those qualities that meant so much to me in 51, 52. Sure. It has, still has that ability to evoke emotion. No question. Maybe you see it through a different lens, but uh, and, and we're older. Yeah. But but nevertheless, yeah. it, it if you want to fall under the sway of the fantasy and the hypnotic quality of cinema, which uh, George Stevens was an architect of, of course, then easily you can fall under that sway. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And and, I mean, you know, for me personally, when I saw the film, I was English Mm -hmm. and and America meant a really dream place. I understood where it was and approximately what it was, but I knew very little about the sort of temperament of the country. Now I, I think of myself as an American. So that that gives me a very different perspective on it, I think, you know, and, and we can get into that. Sure. I appreciate that. So why do you think A Place in the Sun is worth celebrating 70 years later? Why does it still matter and how has it stood the test of time? Here's our chance to kind of take a deeper dive yeah. and kind of piece it apart a little bit in terms of what makes it tick? Why does it still matter? What would you say? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, it's a superbly made film. There's very little in it. There are a few things we'll talk about, but there's very little in it that really goes wrong, Mm. I think. And when it's good, in its most atmospheric passages, it's still an amazing film. And I think for its time, it was a dazzling film. I would say probably historically, it's one of those key films that gets into our feelings through a new kind of acting, a kind of psychological realism. We call it the actor studio. We call it the method, those various terms. But it's one of those films of the 50s and one of the first of them that really draws upon our process of identification with acting that's really a big advance on what acting had been in the movies before. Mm. It's deeper. It's getting at more complicated people. And, you know, I think one has to say that it is a triumph for Montgomery Clift, but also for a certain kind of tender, sensitive male acting that there hadn't been a great deal of before. He's such an interesting character in the film. He's He's in a way very weak, but he's also very strong and almost saintly. And looking at it again recently, I found that the the whole idea that he comes to terms with the fact that he's guilty in his heart, that's a very interesting idea. Yes. Because, you know, technically... He did not murder Alice, Mm -hmm. but he was thinking so much about murdering Alice that the difference is too fine to call. That's a good point. Yeah. Do you believe this is Montgomery Cliff's finest hour? Two hours, I should say. I was already a Cliff fan because of Red River. And then there was From Here to Eternity Still to Come. Yes. But I think this is probably his most intense performance. Okay. I think it's added to by the fact that you feel, and if you read about it, if you read the background, you really believe 
that he and Elizabeth Taylor had a very strong thing for each other. And, and you know, one talks about chemistry between two people mm. in a film quite often. This is an intense version of it. You feel their love, their passion in a very special way. And, you know, when you think that she was 18 when she did it, her part is quite superficial in many ways, but she brings extraordinary presence to it. And I think clearly Stevens was inspired by seeing them, watching them, knowing them into these really very big, passionate close-ups, which yes. I'm not saying they'd never been done before on screen because almost everything has been done before. But I know when I saw the film that first time, it sort of took my breath away that he was going so close. It, and it, it, it was ravishing in a way. I mean, mm. you really felt you were kissing these people. Yes, <laughs> I agree. It almost becomes audience participation in some ways. And it does extreme yeah. close-ups over the shoulder, no yeah. less. It's, it's a yeah. bit different, right? It's not just your standard camera from the front where you have equal kind of coverage of both actors. Yeah. It's over the shoulder. And, and there's something about that. And you see these shots, these famous shots, especially the first kissing scene between yeah. Angela and George, show up in so many highlight reels on the Oscars and, and movie history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really intense stuff. Yeah. And I, I think it had a lot to do with the impact the film made at, at the time. I agree. For my part, it remains an extremely effective mashup of several subgenres, does it not? I mean, it's it could satisfy as a romantic melodrama, yep. a noirish thriller. It's not a film noir outright, but it's a noirish kind of thriller. It looks like a, a noir film a lot of the time. Yep. Absolutely. You've got a courtroom drama toward the end, yep. for better or worse, and... It's a richly themed tragedy, if you just want to look at it almost just as a pure kind of tragic story. Absolutely. So it's, it's a mashup. I'll tell you something that you may know, you may not, but it's a very intriguing point. In 1952, the Sands Hotel and Casino opened in Las Vegas. And on the front wall of the building, beneath Sands Hotel, there was the inscription, a Place in the Sun. Wow. It was clearly inspired by the movie. Hmm. But when Las Vegas is saying to you, come on, here's a place in the sun, it's offering a deal that, that we have a lot of suspicion over. <laughs> but when you look at the film, it really is in part about young ardent, ambitious people mm -hmm. hoping to become successes, but much more than successes, hoping to be happy. And you feel that the title of the film, The Sun, is American happiness. But here it touches on something I find very intriguing in the film. Is there a note of irony in the title or are we are we to take it simply on face value? How do we reconcile the movie's title with those words on the building of the Sands Hotel Casino? Huh. I think that's where you have to remember the Theodore Dreiser novel it comes from, right, right. Which, which is a very complex, dark sociological criticism of America and American attitudes. It's also important to remember that, you know, this was originally a, a true crime. This was based on an actual murder. Absolutely, yeah. That's what Dreiser took as his basis for it. Yes. So, but, you know, it is at the same time, as you were saying earlier, it is a very romantic film. 
you are absolutely caught up in the love story. You feel for it in a way that you seldom do with love stories. George wants to get out of the depths of society up to the heights. He wants a place in the sun Mm -hmm. and very little in the film, maybe nothing, really challenges that assumption on his part. Yeah, that's really good analysis on your part. And just to kind of segue, I think it's one of the most apropos and poetic movie titles of all time. It lives up to its name, A Place in the Sun, because it effectively contrasts the light and dark natures of a fascinatingly complex lead character who's living a double life. You know, many of the scenes involving George with Alice, they employ this noirish, high-contrast lighting and occur at night or in inky black environments. Yeah. But when George is around Angela, of course, the world is literally and figuratively a brighter place. Absolutely. With the filmmakers employing ample natural and artificial light to underscore how bright George's potential future is if he chooses this path. Quick quote from Leonard Malton, who said of this movie that Elizabeth Taylor represents the aspirational brightness that Montgomery Clift so desperately wants, but it all changes when the scene involves Shelley Winters. Is this an ironic title? It could be. Well, I mean, there's the point. The big flaw in the film, from my point of view, is that the Shelley Winters character is not treated in the same way as the other two. No. And I think that's unfair. And I think it turns Dallas into somebody we want to get rid of. We don't really like watching her or listening to her. And I think that it could have been a greater film still if Alice had had more charm. Mm. And if you believed, which I think is there in the book, and I think it really should be there in the film, if you believe that George falls in love with both of them and actually makes a sort of opportunist deal in the end by saying he will go with the rich woman. That element of social criticism is there in the setup, but it's not really explored by the film. It could have been a lot more unsettling, I think. And I think Stevens and everybody made a deal with themselves that they would go for a big hit movie, which which they would have missed if they'd taken on all that criticism. I totally agree with you. And I think the intentions were, of course, different 70 years ago. But here's the thing. Tell me if you disagree. I think that, you know, seven decades later, Shelley Winter's character comes off as so much more sympathetic. You think about how she infuses that character of Alice with a sensitivity, a trusting nature, but an unglamorous banality that sharply contrasts with the actress's image at the time, of course. Again, I didn't even know this, but I guess she was kind of a glamour girl who was a, yeah. a little bit of a pinup queen. But the contrast with Elizabeth Taylor's Angela is, is striking. But here's the difference 70 years later. You see that her character is underserved, and there's kind of a bias toward George and Angela's relationship, of course. Mm. But that actually lends poignancy, to me anyway, as a viewer, and makes me think that while it's easy to kind of try to understand, put yourself in the shoes of George by the end of the movie, and and I guess he accepts that he is guilty because he was thinking of Angela and so forth— it quits him all the less for me. It makes him more of a guilty character and adds a kind of maybe an unintentional at the time layer of moral ambiguity and doubt because I actually feel more empathy or sympathy toward Alice mm. than I ever did before. And I think it's interesting. She Alice is not written as some flirty floozy who would seem to deserve her fate per se. They could have written her as, you know, some loose woman who ends up with George. And I don't know if that would have been true 
to Dreiser's novel or not, because I did not read it. But do you agree? Is she a more sympathetic character today? Just because through the lens of 70 years on, we see that the agenda is a little bit more tilted toward George and Angela. Well, for me, no. I think she's a bit of a dog of a character. And I think I agree with you that she's quite realistic. But I think that she just needs a little more charm Hmm. and humor and lightness and sexiness. You know, obviously, this is a 1951 film, but it's a film about sex in a very real way, although the film is not going to be brave enough to show that. But I wish that you felt not quite the passion you feel in the Angela relationship, but you feel that those two, George and Alice, really have the hearts for each other and really see something in each other. Because then I think you would realize that George really is an opportunist and he's he's going with this illusion of sunshine and a place and a, being part of the vicar's Eastman world, which is not a very engaging world as it's presented in the film. I think there should be more of that. Yeah. The last time I saw the film, I wished in a funny way that Taylor had been cast as Alice. And some of that emotional energy, that sexiness, had been coming through in that part. Interesting. Because then I think you would believe in that involvement a lot more. And that makes George's dilemma really tragic and terrible. I could see your point. The only counter argument I would make is that if I'm to kind of put myself in George's shoes, I'm able to do that that much more effortlessly in terms of, you know, creating a moral quandary in my own conscience of what would I do in this situation, only because the temptation of the life with Angela would be that much more appealing because she's that much more of a contrast with Alice. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's short shrift on Alice. She absolutely gets the short end of the straw here in terms of characterization uh, compared to Angela. I get that. But again, it makes it easier for me as a viewer to live surreptitiously through George It would be really tempting to go with Angela because she's apparently so much more appealing uh, as far as the prospects, the sexiness, etc. than Alice. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. But, you know, I think what the film needs is the faith to make Alice more interesting. I can easily see a film where Angela is an empty-headed socialite. And actually, when you think about the character, Apart from the performance, the character is presented in that way. Suppose Alice really had ideas about the world. Suppose she was a labor organizer in the factory. Just give her a little more substance. Then I think she could become a worthy rival to Angela, and more than a worthy rival, actually a more interesting person. That being said, do you agree with me that Shelley Winters really knocks it out of the park here? I mean, it's almost like she creates the template for the frumpy, naive, clinging love interest who eventually gets murdered. I mean, she she ends up playing this kind of part in several subsequent movies, and she's fantastic in this film. Would you agree? She does a very, very good job. I have no criticism or complaint of her at all. It's the conception of her character that I find lacking. I see. Yeah. 
So let's pivot, if we could here, David, to talking about maybe exploring some ways that A Place in the Sun might have been influential on cinema or pop culture. Was this the first of its kind in any way? We talked, for example, about those uh, extreme close-ups, over-the-shoulder shots. Hadn't really seen something like that much before, right? It's always dangerous to say you hadn't seen that before because (laughs) the more you look at the history of film, and I'm sure you're into this, the more you discover almost everything has been done or tried before. Yeah, I instantly think of It's a Wonderful Life from 1946, yeah. several years before, where the pivotal scene between George and Mary, there's extreme close-ups, including over-the-shoulder over the, sh- over the yeah. close-ups. I mm-hmm. do think what's fascinating about this film is that you have a love affair that you feel intensely, and it's doomed. And you sort of know it's doomed quite early because you see the alignment between the two women. And you see that George can't really get out of that trap he's in. And that's when it really becomes a noir film. And, you know, there are two big sequences that are real noir sequences. The one around Alice's house, the seduction passage of the film, but also the night scene in the woods. Yes. I think it's one of the most amazing things in the film wonderfully gloomy and the way in which almost at the end of his tether George runs into this man who says are you George Eastman because if you are you're under arrest what an interesting directorial choice uh, in terms of the filmmakers uh, they didn't extend it out to be some you know prolonged chase sequence no, or something no. it's just this shadowy figure waiting for him that's <laughs> right and it, it's amazingly well done and you know in the course of the film you you feel that Loon Lake is a wonderful, enchanted place, and then you feel it's a haunted place. Right. And Stevens handles that, and and the cameraman, handle that fantastically, I think. Totally agree. Yeah, just to kind of drill down a little bit deeper here, here are some points that, you know, in, in looking at it a little closer and doing a little bit of research, and, and I want you to riff on these as you see fit, mm. but answering the question in terms of how it might have been influential or set trends or whatever— I think we can agree it was notable in its day for its creative, expressive use of extended overlapping dissolves between shots. Very much so, yeah. It seems yeah. that juxtapose images that often contrast with each other. You think of the That's right. nighttime shot of Alice's bedroom that transitions into an early morning shot where I think you actually hear a rooster crow. I know. And then that darkly lit shot of George's pious mother slowly dissipating into a brightly lit image of George attending a swanky party. A real contrast That's in right. terms of morality. And of course, by then, dissolves were beginning to go out of fashion. Mm. Uh, but okay. but Stevens really went back to them with with a vengeance. And, and you do feel that the dissolve is part of the the whole construct of the film. It isn't simply an editing device; it's a poetic device, as you were saying. It's a slowing device too. Uh, and a, another thing about the film which I don't think was influential, but I think is remarkable. It's really quite a slow film. Mm. It takes its time to draw us into feelings. And there is a way, I think, in which the dissolves have to do with the place of the lake and water in the film altogether. It spurs my interest in watching it all over again. But (laughs) I think we can agree, right? I mean, in terms of controversial or innovative or influential, what have you, let's talk just for a moment about how the picture proved controversial in its depiction of a pregnant, unwed mother seeking an abortion. Now, the Hayes Code wouldn't allow the use of the words pregnancy or abortion 
So the filmmakers had to dance around those words and ideas carefully. So we see, you know, Alice tells the doctor she's gotten into trouble, which was another way of saying pregnant. And in a roundabout way, she's asking the doctor to help her end the pregnancy, which the doctor refuses. Now, this was regarded as a taboo subject for a Hollywood film in those days, of course. So what are your thoughts here in terms of the controversy kind of level of this movie? Well, I think that's the kind of plot situation that stands up very badly. Because mm. by today, we know exactly what Alice wants. We know exactly what the doctor's attitude is. And I find that sequence very cut and dried. I would love it if the doctor intimated that maybe for enough money he could do something. Yeah, but that wouldn't have gotten past the censors, right? Well, he would need great skill. Uh, yeah. but, 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 but it could be. And also the fact is that the doctor is this wonderful character actor, Ian Wolfe, who did so much good work in American pictures. And he, he, mm-hmm. he brings a lot to the scene. However, let me just say this. How do you read this situation? It's fairly apparent early on. And then we really go through it in a very interesting atmospheric way that Alice and George are going to have sex. But the suggestion that George and Angela would have sex never arises. So interesting. Now, why is that, do you think? Well, it's obvious that you need a a plot contrivance where she gets pregnant, which creates the whole dilemma, right? I mean, he can't just leave her. But they have sex before she gets pregnant. And they have sex because they want to have sex. Now, Mm. is there something about George and Angela that does not need sex? Or is that unduly contrived? Yeah, it's an interesting question. What do you think? Well, I think it's a little contrived. And I think, I suspect from what I've learned that Clifton Taylor were having sex quite a lot. Now, that's interesting because the research I gathered, uh, maybe it's been refuted or changed, but I thought at this point he was a closeted gay actor and he didn't reciprocate the affection that Taylor showed him. Well, there may well have been difficulties, but I don't think that was for want of trying. I think that something happened between them, and I think it brings a great deal to what they are like on screen. Again, I'm not complaining, but I do think it's interesting that there's never a suggestion uh, that those two will have sex. It's a strange kind of class distinction, I think, that Alice is a sort of, she's a lower class person, so she'll have sex. Angela is a little more aristocratic, so she'll hold on to her virginity. Yeah, it creates further food for thought, does it not? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you're doing the deep probing that is necessary to kind of really get your head around this movie and, and understand it uh, 70 years later. Well, the film deserves it, I think. You know, that's yeah, the thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Real quick, I want to finish the thought on ways it was influential or innovative. It could have created fashion trends or at least made audiences take notice of the look and attire of Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, I'm not a historian when it comes to fashion or something like that, but I guess her her wardrobe, it was designed by the legendary Edith Head. Yeah. Apparently, some of her outfits proved popular in the fashion world. I, I assume that's true. And then you think about Clift's simple leather jacket and white T-shirt look, which actually predates later 50s icons like James Dean and Jack Kerouac. A little interesting there. Did you notice uh, any any fashion trends in, in Britain uh, after, after watching the movie? No, not in Britain, but we didn't have fashion. I do think that his black leather jacket or dark leather jacket in that opening scene where he's hitchhiking, backing into the camera, 
I think that was a very striking choice. Yeah. Also, the white T-shirt he's in a lot of the time. T-shirts only really came into movies in the sort of late 40s. Brando wears a T-shirt in Streetcar. Streetcar, right. It's a kind of uh, modernity of costume that is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And certainly that had a big influence, I think. Taylor's clothes are actually very old-fashioned in the film. Mm-hmm. So a small point, but uh, a little bit interesting. Yeah. Uh, real quickly, you could you could debatably trace a through line from the passion dripping kissing sequences in A Place in the Sun, maybe to the sultry rolling in the surf shots two years later and from here to eternity. Do you see a through line there? Well, I think generally speaking, in the 1950s, a lot of film makers and a lot of film stars were pushing for a little bit more sexual liberty. Okay you could feel that there was going to be a breakdown in censorship. It didn't occur until the 1960s, but things were pressing for it. So yes, the surf scene between Carr and Lancaster in From Here to Eternity, that was a very important scene in that there never quite been a love scene placed in a position like that. And, Mm. And I do think that that was going on in the 50s. I don't think there was any plan for it. It was just it was just happening, but I think it had a lot to do with the fact that actors and actresses just mm-hmm. felt the need to be a little less restrained than they had been in the 30s and the 1940s. That makes sense. All right, let's talk a bit about how George Stevens might be the ideal director for A Place in the Sun. What special qualities does he bring to this film, would you say? The interesting thing about Stevens is that his very successful career in the 30s and the 40s was based upon films not like this at all. It was, mm-hmm. it, it was based on comedies and musicals, and he was known for his light touch. Now, mm-hmm. the conventional reading of Stevens is that he really grew up, came of age during the war, He was overseas. He was in Europe. He was doing filming. He was at the relief of concentration camps, that kind of thing. But there is a feeling that Stevens deepened as a person. But I do think that his post-war films are more personal. They're more psychological. I think this is the best of them. But a film like Giant, which is a big, sprawling film with a lot of good things, but a lot of poor things. But the young Dean in Giant is treated very much in the way that George is treated here. Mm -hmm. Not a central figure, not an ideal figure, a compromised figure, an opportunist. But there's great tenderness for both of them, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I, I think this may have been a subject that helped George Stevens to go a little deeper into himself. You think about how he wasn't afraid to push boundaries, break from cinematic conventions. Mm-hmm. For instance, if you really look at a lot of the shots, he sometimes puts a key character's back to the camera for long stretches. Often, yep. Cases in point, like Alice faces George, but is turned away from us in the bedroom scene where George arrives late on his birthday, right? Yep. And then, you know, George faces Angelo when she visits him on death row. Those are just two of the, the many examples of that. 
You think about how Stevens and his cinematographer, William Mellor, both of whom won Academy Awards for their work in the movie, they didn't balk at extremely dark compositions and shadowy nighttime scenes. There wasn't a day-for-night approach here. These are real dark scenes. The sequence where George enters Alice's residence and woos her in the utterly black edges of the frame, we talked about this earlier, A great worthy example, as is the later montage where George tries to escape through the murky forest. You yourself pointed those two scenes out. I totally agree. You think about this director valuing the long, uninterrupted takes that allow a scene to unfold organically Mm -hmm. and let the actors kind of do the heavy lifting. Exhibit A here, David, is... The previously mentioned scene where George arrives late to Alice's home on his birthday. It's just one long, uninterrupted shot for the most part. It's it's just beautiful. And then you consider how Stevens shrewdly uses motifs to suggest ideas, create foreshadowing. One repeated pattern is George being separated from someone or something by a kind of barrier, like George standing outside Alice's window, George watching Angela across the front gate of the house, George behind prison bars, etc., etc. Another motif is that's obvious is drowning which is suggested by the painting of Ophelia. That's a character who drowned in Shakespeare's Hamlet, of course. Alice is mentioning that she can't swim, the news broadcast that cautions listeners to be careful when celebrating the holidays. So he liked to use motifs. Maybe he was a little bit overt in some of the symbolism, but nevertheless, he was uh, fairly consistent. We talked about how he had a gift for tapping the ideal thespian talent. He he chose the then glamour girl Shelley Winters as a dowdy lower class love interest to George. He cast a 17-year-old at the time, Elizabeth Taylor, in the radiant role of Angela. The film announced the arrival of both as serious, talented actresses to be reckoned with. Maybe not their greatest performances ever, but I mean, again, you took notice, whereas you didn't before with those actresses. And then you think about, David, how Stevens and his collaborators demonstrate a form of cinematic mastery and how efficiently and economically they introduce the story. So if you go back to the beginning and think about it, the story, the characters, the central conflict, it's all kind of laid out for you neatly, for the most part, not not entirely, within the first 10 minutes. George and his lower class predicament are impressively well established, as is Alice in the first, as I said, 10 minutes. The filmmakers, they even use the opening credit sequence to get the narrative machinery going, not wasting those first few minutes to just show words on a screen. You're talking about techniques of storytelling that were by no means uncommon in Hollywood at that time. Of course. I think if any one thing Mm -hmm. really gave wings to Stevens on this film, it was the realization of what Cliff could do on screen when he doesn't really have action. Cliff is an actor in this film who draws us into behind his eyes, behind the face, and he lets us know what George is thinking and feeling. Totally. Stevens is not really directed performances like that before. I think the impact that Clift and Brando and a few years later, Dean, had upon directors in showing them what you could do with actors. It's a very important part of this film. Yes, agreed. Absolutely. Let's talk a bit about themes, messages, or morals, if you agree that there are any here, explored in A Place in the Sun. Now, one obvious one, the dark side of the American dream. I think 70 years ago, nearly every man aspired to have what George craved, a beautiful wife, wealth, successful climb up the social ladder. But A Place in the Sun, it kind of serves as a cautionary tale that this dream can turn into a nightmare given the right circumstances. 
Agree or not? Well, I do agree, but I, I think I would go further because I think that mm-hmm. I think that if you were to remake this story today, it would have to be a much darker, more exploring view of American society. I think you would have to ask the question, what does George really want in life beyond having his picture in the paper with Angela? I mean, what is he going to do? Is he simply going to be one of the idle rich that he's ma- he's thinking he will marry into? Is that sufficient? Is that truly a place in the sun? Or does an interesting, lively American not deserve something more complicated? If you think about remaking it now, in obviously a very different world, you would have to get into the subject matter that in fact Dreiser had gotten into in his original novel, which is a very dark vision of America. Now, movies in 1951 were not into making dark visions of the audience's experience, but I don't think you'd get away with it today. I think it would have Mm. to be more complicated. If you think of Woody Allen's Matchpoint, which has a sort of similar situation of a guy who's got two women and what he's going to do with them, that is a very much darker vision. I'm not saying it's a perfect film by any means, but I think it shows you what you'd have to do with this matter if you were to film it today. Yeah, and a quick spoiler alert, the differentiation between that movie and this movie uh, is quite striking. I mean, they, they, they turn the tables on the characters in different ways. Yep. But also, the guy gets away with it by the end of Match Point. Well, we're living in a society, alas, where we know that more and more people get away with stuff. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think that it's a huge problem how American art can face that and deal with it in a candid way. And it's why when you look back on the 1951 film, mm-hmm. you forgive it, but it's making a lot of compromises that it couldn't get away with today. Exactly. We don't have the Hayes Code, thankfully, anymore. But it is interesting to see how the filmmakers, while they were kind of constrained, how they creatively got around the rules yeah. in, in different ways. But yeah, to your point, if they had remade it, yeah, it would be a very, very different approach, perhaps, yeah. and, and likely a different outcome or story. Yeah. But very quickly to get back to themes, I mean, you look at the inescapability of your past. George cannot untether himself from his background as the son of poor religious good Samaritans or his lack of education and financial resources, just as he can't evade his recent past in which he rushed into a relationship with disastrous consequences for his ambitions. The movie reminds us that we can't really outrun our identity or the regretful choices we've made. Okay, but let me, I mean, let me pose a question that gets to some of that. Sure. If, George is the son of the mother we see, if he has been raised in the world we get a glimpse of, how come he's such a good dancer and how come he's such a brilliant (laughs) pool player? (laughs) Fair points, absolutely. He's just naturally gifted, I guess. He's just got it. Some people, they're just good at everything. You you sometimes hear about these musicians who've never picked up an instrument and they're just multi-talented and whatever. They, They instantly pick it up. Maybe he's just that. Way. Maybe maybe he's a savant in life or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's a good point. Yeah, it's Hollywood magic, of absolutely, course. Right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But uh, again, a major theme that actually George's son talked with me about a little bit: the outsider versus.
versus the insider. Yeah. George has a dual identity, that of the privileged, fortunate son who, by virtue of family lineage, has an opportunity to social climb and be part of the in-crowd. At the same time, he's the perpetual outsider, the enigmatic odd duck in the Eastman line who doesn't quite fit in. And to visually emphasize the latter, George often faces away from the camera, showing us his back, standing out from other characters in the same frame, etc. Right. So this outsider versus insider thing is pretty transparent, I, th- I would think. Do remember how in Giant, Dean plays Jet, who is a classic outsider, much more of an mm-hmm. outsider than George, who comes to power and only makes a disaster of his life after that. Mm, yeah. A couple more themes to hit on. Be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. (laughs) It's kind of a theme here. George seems to have what he wants in his grasp, the girl, the career, the social acceptance, the bright future. But ultimately, he experiences a, if you look at it this way, maybe a karmic comeuppance because he had to shirk his responsibilities and deceive to get there and because he had evil intentions regarding Alice. Well, I think it would be a lot more interesting if you felt he really loved Alice, but mm. then discovered someone he loved all the more because she could help him advance more. I think that theme now is a very, very American theme. That's why I would like the film to have explored that more fully. Yeah, I see what you're saying. My last point on a theme is watching and being watched. Throughout the story, we see George being observed by those around him either out of curiosity or attraction or suspicion or even animosity. We hear Angela about to say, I love you to George after he tells her that, but she cuts the remark short. And what do we hear her say? She says, are they looking at us? Yep. She makes eye contact with the camera. So interesting. And and by extension, us, yep. which again, plays into this theme of watching and being watched. It's also part of a kind of latent paranoia in George. George is, from the beginning, very insecure in fascinating ways. I think that it's easy now to look back on the film and see a gay actor trying to be a heterosexual character. Yeah, it's easy to do that, right? Uh, Armchair quarterbacking. But you have to just lose yourself and the actors, the performances, the characters, the situations, etc., and kind of forget all that stuff to kind of fall in love with the movie all over again. But yeah, I mean, you could take a reading of that into it because you know so much more now about the actors and the context. I think it's there on screen. Mm-hmm. I think you, I think it's palpable on mm-hmm. on screen. And, and you know, you have to remember that the people making the film knew that Clift was at the very least bisexual. Not alone in that, in terms of Hollywood actors. Right. All right, so this is a 70th birthday celebration, David. Birthdays are all about getting presents, except I always tell my guests that it's the fans who continue to get the gifts. So what is A Place in the Sun's greatest gift to viewers? One gift, not the only one, but one gift would be to say to a young person looking at the film now, just get a load of how much atmosphere, cinematic atmosphere you can deliver in black and white. Mm. You know, a lot of kids today, your son maybe, I don't know, probably would be wary of the film just because it's black and white. Of course, yeah. (laughs) And yet you and I know, and anyone who really gets into the film knows that black and white is one of the greatest advantages it has. The big atmospheric scenes we've talked about, the look of Clift and Taylor, 
you wouldn't have it in the same way and the same intensity in color. No. I mean, one gift is remember black and white. Yes, preach on, brother. Absolutely. <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, certainly, this is a film that is a tribute to acting. You've got three remarkable performances, and, and you've got one or two supporting performances. Raymond Burr is very good in the film, I think. Mm -hmm. And Ian Wolfe is very good in it. And, and I think Stevens loved acting. You feel it and you feel him digging deeper into the film in terms of working with his actors. So that's a gift. I think you hit on a lot of good ones well, there. They are good, but at the same time, I think people who do what you and I do, which is try to preserve the past of cinema, it, it's a tough, tough game. I have grandchildren. I think if I talk them into it, they'd get something out of this film. But it would be a tough sell in the first instance. It would, yeah. That's a sad thing to have to admit. I know. I talk at length with my guests about this. How do you keep you know, a movie resonant, relevant? How do you introduce it to new generations? It's always going to be a challenge. You hope that future generations have good context and perspective, appreciation for the arts, and that maybe in school they'll start putting a little bit more film appreciation kind of emphasis in some of the classrooms, not just college, but elementary and above. It's a tall order, but a lot of teaching aids are done through watching movies still to this day. Sure. So you got to hope that they're still showing some old ones, let's say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. I want to go back for a moment just to just share with you briefly my greatest gifts. I thought about this long and hard as far as A Place in the Sun goes. I think it continues to bestow several greatest gifts on fans and admirers. First, it's still a great A example of the power of the Hollywood fantasy machine, giving us an utterly delectable, aspirational mirage with dreamily romanticized imagery. It's easy to kind of fall into the sway, the hypnotic sway of, what would I do if I were George? I think the second greatest gift is that it reminds us that we cannot escape our moral responsibilities, nor the earlier choices we've made. So leading a double life, it simply isn't sustainable. It's a sobering lesson the film serves up by contrasting George's blissful illusions with a terrifyingly stark reality. It's easy to feel trapped into a life of compromises, sacrifices, and surrender of your ambitions if you take what you have for granted and follow temptation. You can't just shirk your responsibilities. You know, you have to abide by the choices you've made and follow through on them. I also think that what makes this film a cut above is that it's not a simple black and white cautionary tale. It explores George's quandary in intricate shades of gray. He's judged at the end as guilty by a jury of his peers. He's put to death. But the truth of his culpability is kind of cloudy, as you and I were talking about. Seven decades after its release, David, it's easier to poke holes in George's defense that he's legally innocent. They barely talk about it in the courtroom. He's walking away from a crime scene, from a death, and not reporting it, right? Mm -hmm. So just the crime of omission by itself is reprehensible and deserving of punishment. But contemporary audiences, I think they're surely more sensitive to the injustices experienced by Alice, as you were talking about. Personally, in my most recent rewatch of the movie, I put myself in George's shoes again, and I, I wondered what would I do in his situation. Now, I'm not saying, David, I would choose adultery or I would choose murder or deceit. I'm just suggesting that we often don't know what we're capable of under the right circumstances. And to me, that makes this film more than a straightforward entertainment. It's a picture that makes you think and wonder what if. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're currently working on anything, any projects of note, any forthcoming books? I know you have that recent book on directors out. It takes a number of major directors, mm -hmm. talks about them in terms of their work, but their career. It tries to illustrate and track 
the way the job of directing, how our attitudes to directors has changed over time. Mm. I can't wait to uh, dig into this. Now, it's called A Light in the Dark, A History of Movie Directors. That's it. It was released earlier this year, that, correct? That's right. Very, very good. And do you have another one in the works that you'd like to talk about? I have a book coming out early in the new year called Disaster Mon Amour, which is, which is a book about how we love disasters. We obviously <laughs> hate them and we loathe them, but if they're happening to other people, we can find them very entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you talking about disaster movies? I'm talking about disaster in any form you recognize. Oh, it. wow. The whole ball of wax. I do talk about disaster movies, but I talk about real life disasters, too. Yeah. Well, that's a broad subject, but a fascinating one, and yeah. I will keep that on the radar. Okay. David, it was so much fun talking to you. I could talk for hours with you, sir. You are a passionate film fan and a revered historian of movies. And it was a great pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed it. A great pleasure for me, too. So I thank you deeply. Oh, what a delight it was to speak with David. Thank you. Kudos to you, sir, for making the visit to Cineversary. I had better shine up my lucky rabbit's foot because I don't know if I can get any luckier than being able to interview two industry legends like George Stevens Jr. and David Thompson. We transition now to standing ovations. This is the point in the show where I give a shout out to a podcast, book, website, film, TV program, or other work that I think would be of interest to listeners like you. For November, yeah, it's not brand spanking new, but if you've not yet discovered the Netflix series, The Movies That Made Us, here's a strong endorsement. This series of short documentaries, with each episode focusing on one movie that's firmly embedded as a pop culture touchstone, is not only informative, but yes, highly entertaining. Thanks in large part to the comedically tinged narration of Danny Wallace, lots of clever editing, sprinkles of hilarious animations that complement the talking head interviews, and a refreshing approach to making up docs that avoids larding on pretentious praise and super serious analysis of a given movie. Season 3, which dropped back in October, includes tributes to Halloween, RoboCop, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Aliens, Coming to America, and the first Friday the 13th film. Previous seasons have spotlighted Jurassic Park, Forrest Gump, Back to the Future, Die Hard, and Ghostbusters. Yeah, these may not be art house darlings or works hailed by critics everywhere, but the films featured in the movies that made us, along with their respective episodes in this Netflix show, appeal to a wide audience and, if nothing else, serve as some binge-worthy junk food you can, you know, watch around the holidays in rapid fashion, with each installment clocking in typically yeah, about under an hour. It hasn't reinvented the format exactly, and it's not going to top some of the exemplary bonus features you'll find on, say, discs by Criterion or Shout Factory or other distributors of classic films. But hey, if you want to indulge in some fun and frivolous content devoted to mainstream blockbuster hits, yeah, this is the series for you. So give it a watch. Instead of cluttering up our podcast with advertisements, we've decided to ask our listeners for their support. We could use your help to offset the costs to produce Cineversary, which includes expenses like podcast hosting provider fees. If you'd like to make a monetary contribution to the Cineversary podcast in any amount, large or small, we've made it safe and simple by partnering with PayPal to collect the funds. Simply visit tinyurl.com, that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com, slash Donate Cineversary, and click on the Donate button. 
Any major credit card is accepted and the entire transaction is handled securely and confidentially by PayPal. Or if you're familiar with PayPal, you can simply send us a payment in any amount you want to cineversegroup at gmail.com. And that's spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group at gmail.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, I'd love to hear what you think of our Cineversary podcast. You can email me suggestions or comments at cineversegroup at gmail.com. And I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com, the portal for my film discussion group that I launched in 2005, where you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and read more about the movies we study. Okay, the holiday season is practically here, and there's no better time to commemorate the diamond anniversary of the consensus pick for greatest Christmas movie ever. Reconvene with us in December as we learn anew why no man is a failure who has friends, and every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. That's right, time to celebrate the 75th anniversary of It's a Wonderful Life, directed by Frank Capra and released in late 1946. Once again, I'm planning to speak with two terrific guests for my next episode, so I hope you'll join me next month. Until then, I remain your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies because they're not getting older, they're getting better. Thanks again for listening, and Happy Thanksgiving! Thanksgiving!